Welcome to our podcast, All About the Car, brought to you by Sherrill Tire and Service. I'm your host, Rob Hoffman, an auto service specialist with over 44 years of industry experience. With me in the studio today, our regular guest, Brian Call, a 38-year veteran in the automotive industry. Hey, Rob. Thank you so much for having me ride along today. And Bill Sherrill, a guy who's been driving a long time and has a lot of great questions. Hi, Rob. Glad to be part of the drive today. Today we're talking about buying your next set of tires. You know, we really wouldn't have anything to talk about if it weren't for some notable people. John Dunlop, Charles Goodyear, and Andre Michelin. Charles Goodyear was noted to say, You can have an engine, you can have a chassis, you can have a drivetrain and wheels, but without tires, you're stuck. So that kind of began the whole thing. John Boyd Dunlop, back in 1988, invented the first pneumatic tire made for a bicycle. Rob, what is a pneumatic tire? Isn't I that just, a cool I word? I just know tires. <laughs> pneumatic means air-filled. Oh. So air gives you a cushion, of course, and it's part of the suspension. But yeah, pneumatic, it's a neat word. It's kind of yeah. cool to say. Yeah. Pneumatic. That means there's air inside. And before that, there wasn't air. So it had to be a very rough ride if it was just solid rubber. Yeah, going way back, dialing way back would have been a solid rubber or even just a metal band. And you can imagine what kind of ride that would have been. So it wasn't until, uh, well, I think like seven years later, Andre Michelin actually put that theory and that process to work on cars. Okay, well, I'm going to dial it back, back to Charles Goodyear. And that's going way back in the early 1800s where he actually invented vulcanization. Now, vulcanization, that sounds like another fun word to say, but like, what is that? That's not like Spock and his whole colony of... Star Trek? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Vulcans, didn't the Vulcans introduce vulcanization to our world? I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did, but it probably looked nothing the same as it does Vulcanization is, being from Vulcan is many, many centuries after... Charles Goodyear Vulcan oh. invented vulcanization. That's taking the rubber and waterproofing it and winterproofing it to keep it soft and pliable. Mm. Otherwise, it gets hard and dries out and doesn't do us any good. You're back to the like solid rubber metal wheel if that's not vulcanized. Correct. Hey, Rob. Yeah. What was the first car that had a tubeless tire installed on it? A uh, tubeless tire, I would think, would be in the 70s? Uh, you got to dial it back a little farther than that. It was a 1954 Packard. That was the first car that came with tires that did not have an inner tube in it. Wow, all the way back to 54. And wasn't that Packard also did the air conditioning first? Was that yep. the same year or model? I don't remember exactly. Nope, the air conditioning was several years before that, but yes, it was Packard. Wow, and they don't exist. Nope, they were ahead of their time and all of a sudden got passed up. Too bad. You got some neat facts there. What else you got? What was the first snow tire developed? Who made that? Hmm. Snow tire. Think winter. Who gets a lot of snow? Who gets a lot of snow? Canada. North Pole. Santa Claus. <laughs> Let's go to Europe. Oh, okay. We're going to um, go over there. It's a Finnish company called Nokian, and they developed the first snow tire in 1936. Oh, my gosh. 1936. So it's been around a long time. Wow. Hmm. Who invented the first steel-belted radial? Every tire produced now is a steel-belted radial. Back in the 70s, we had all kinds of problems with that. I'm sure many of you had belt separations on your tires, and that's from the steel belt actually coming apart and 
failing internally, but that what was the first year that the steel belted radial? Well, knowing classic cars like I do, I remember that transitional period back, um, well, here in the United States in, ah, what was it, maybe late 60s, early 70s? Is that kind of where the steel-belted radio came around? Yep. In the U.S., it was in the late 60s, early 70s. But it was developed in Europe by Michelin back in 1948. Oh, my gosh. They're way ahead of us. (laughs) It's amazing that the tire history has gone back so far. That, I mean, the technology is amazing how long it has lasted and where it's going. Oh, it's constantly being developed. Engineers will take tires and actually cut the tread design in it with a knife and go out and test it to see how it performs in various conditions. Now, that's a job I'd prefer not to do, the cutting of the design. No, that sounds dangerous. Yeah. You wouldn't want to give me a knife. No. I no. think it would be a hoot. I'd love to do that. <laughs> you just want to go out and drive them like that. Absolutely. That's what you want to do. So speaking of uh, cuts and driving, run-flat tires, when did the first run-flat tire come around? It was developed in 1979, and we were debating earlier, and we never got the true answer, but we think it was the mid-'80s Corvette that was first used in production with a run-flat tire. That makes a lot of sense. I do remember that. There was no place for a spare tire in a Corvette back then, and probably not today either, but you had to have a run-flat tire to get to the next service station. Yep. Give you 50 miles of extended range if you punctured it and went flat. And with a run-flat tire, I know there's quite a few vehicles today. How long can you go on a tire with no air, a run-flat tire? Well, you're supposed to keep your speed limit down to a maximum speed of 50 miles an hour, and you can drive up to 50 miles on most run-flats. Oh, so that, that might get you where you're going. What kind of ride is that? Is it as bad as I think it might be? That's one of the challenges with run-flats is... They are a stiffer ride. That's why you typically find them on more of the performance-style cars. So there's a lot to consider when you're thinking of new tires. The question comes around quite often. I've been told I need new tires soon. I may have been at my service center. I may have been at Sherrill Tire and Service, and they recommended tires soon. How do I really know that it's time to put new tires on my car? Well, the best indication is the amount of tread that you have left on the tire. Typically, we start recommending tires at 4.30 seconds of tread or less. 2.30 seconds is the legal limit that you're allowed to actually operate the tires at. This 4.30 seconds, is that a measurement of some sort, I assume? Yep, it's the measurement of how much tread is actually remaining on the tire. And typically, that's measured in 30 seconds of an inch or possibly millimeters. So that's a tread depth, basically. And you can actually look at a tire and see if you've got enough tread, too. There's ways of doing that, I would imagine, as well. Yeah, there's some indicators placed throughout the tread of the tire. There's a little bump in there that's two thirty seconds of an inch higher than the bottom of the tread. Once you see that is even with the rest of the tread, so the tread is wore off and it's even with that bump, that indicates that you're down to the 230 seconds or at the legal tread limit. And that's built right into the tire. Built right into the tire. Is it one bump or am I looking for multiple bumps? It's one bump going across the face of the tread in different intervals throughout the tire. Across the tire? We can put a picture of this on our blog. That's a heck of a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, we'll place a link out there so you can check that out and see where those tread depth where indicators are on a tire. You'll notice them when you look at the tread face of a tire. You'll see a raised section down in the channel of the tread. Those are tread wear indicators. And there's also a tool that 
will measure this, correct? Not just a penny. Absolutely. The tread depth gauge, which all tire centers have, is the most accurate way to tell you where you're actually at. And actually gives you those measurements that you were referring to earlier, like the four or 30 seconds and two or 30 seconds, whatever those numbers were that made my head spin. Yes, it does. So what is uh, typically uh, in a car or SUV, what do the tire tread depths typically start out as on a brand new tire? On your auto tires, your car tires, it's typically in the 10 to 12, 30 seconds. So you have about 8 to 10, 30 seconds of usable tread. And a lot of the good all-season radials will typically deliver 50, 60, 70,000 miles of tread. So if you get a lot of use out of your tires. You start getting into light truck with your more aggressive tread designs that need to dig in and bite and get good traction. They can be upwards of 18, 30 seconds. So quite a bit more tread on those. Okay, so there's uh, plenty of rubber to burn off there for sure before you get down to the 230 seconds. Another question that I had, and it requires some conversation, many people go out and will buy just two tires. So you've got obviously four tires on your car and two of them are worn out, two of them aren't. I've got a couple questions about that. One would be, how do you get to that point where two are worn out and two aren't? That's typically from not rotating the tires often enough. Most cars are front-wheel drive or all-wheel drive now. The front-wheel drive will wear out the front tires significantly faster than the rear tires. If you ran them all the way down, it'd be almost two tires to one. You'd wear out two front tires to one set of rear tires. So rotating your tires every five to 6,000 miles is critical for both the longevity of the tire as well as nice, smooth, even tread wear to get the mileage that you expect out of the tires. So if I was one of those people that didn't rotate their tires and I ended up needing just two tires, can I do that? On some vehicles, you can. On your front-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive vehicles, you can. On an all-wheel drive, it is recommended that you do not replace two tires at a time. If you happen to ruin one and it's fairly new, that's okay. A couple 30 seconds of an inch difference is okay. But if you start getting more than that, that will do some serious damage to your vehicle. Wow. And what about the spare tire? I never even think about replacing that one. Is that something if I have my car long enough that I should really even look at? Most cars come with a what's called a temporary spare. So it's a totally different size tire in most cases. There are a few vehicles that do have a full-size spare, but that's getting fewer and farther between. So I don't have to worry about it. Another good thing. You want to worry about it a little bit. Make sure it's got air just in case you need it. Fair. All right. Go in your trunk and check the air pressure. All right. I did that during my spring cleaning. There you go. You know, we've got a great link on our website that will uh, take you further into that conversation about replacing two or four tires and exactly where to put them if you do replace two and what vehicles are able to accept only two or need to have four. So make sure you check out our link on our website. At this point, you're getting ready. Okay, you need tires. It's time to get out there. And, oh, where do I start? The best thing that I can recommend is just to collect your thoughts. you got to try to think and be ready for when you walk in to your tire and service center. Some things you want to think of ahead of time is, what do I require from my next set of tires? What's important to me? You need to know what your needs are for performance from your tires. So a good way to do that is to identify your driving style. 
Do you spend most of the time on the highway? Do you commute long distances? Are you just in town, city? What kind of weather conditions do you encounter when you drive, uh, when you commute? All kinds of things like this. For a lot of pickup trucks, do you spend time ice fishing? Do you go out on the lake? Do you head down a logging trail to hunt, fishing, get into the backwoods? A lot of things that happen here in Wisconsin. So know what your expectations are on your next set of tires and know what benefit of a tire is most important to you. Are there variations between if I say I want to have traction, does that necessarily make it that I'm going to give up something else, a quiet ride, a comfortable ride? I mean, how do all those things balance out? If I have a high priority in one, does that mean all the rest have to follow, go by the wayside? Yes. Okay. All of that. In constructing or designing a tire, the tire manufacturers cannot put every benefit into the design of a tire. You have to give up something to get something. For example, a race tire has zero voids in it, but it gives excellent dry road handling. Mm -hmm. And the dry road handling, you're giving up snow traction because there's no voids or sipes in it to make it handle better in the snow. So that's an extreme example, but it's, it's something that shows the difference between what the tire can actually do in certain situations. You said something that I don't understand, a siping? Yep. Every tire has what's called sipes. Sipes are the little cuts in the tire. The more sipes that are in the tire, the more adverse weather conditions that the tire can handle. So snow, rain, and so on. True snow tire has thousands of sipes around it. And each one of those are little biting edges to grab in and hold the road in adverse weather conditions. Brian, is there a better time of the year to shop for tires? Most people typically do it in the fall to get prepared for the winter. In our climate, we don't get the monsoon rains like they get in the southeast. So wet traction is obviously important, but not as critical in our neck of the woods typically. So that's why most people shop in the winter to get the best tires they can for the winter traction, which is our most adverse weather. So I would think that if you were, let's say if you made it through the winter, you're into spring and you still need those tires, you slipped through the winter and you made it, luckily, fingers crossed, probably wouldn't be a good idea to have worn out tires in the summer either. I mean, can you buy tires in the spring? Are there deals out there at that time? Oh, absolutely. Coming into the summer, or the spring with the rains, hydroplaning is a definite concern. I think that's also a fact of what kind of roads do you drive on. If the older roads, hydroplaning, because there's the well-traveled grooves in the middle of the road, I mean, hydroplaning becomes far more, I'll say, regular than on if you're riding on the highways. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Your interstate system has really good road crowns and don't have the little potholes and mm-hmm. some of the wonderful side roads that we have. Yeah. Well, let's pull off to the side of the road just for a couple minutes here, and let's talk about some interesting things you can do, some day trips you can do in Wisconsin that, quite frankly, is pretty unique to Wisconsin. Have you ever heard, guys, have you ever heard the term said, the east coast of Wisconsin? I've only heard that in reference somewhat to that Door County is called the Cape Cod of the West. Yes, and Door County is part of that East Coast, if you will, and that means we have a lot of water to the east, and with water comes a lot of transportation, as we know, and transportations happen in our outside of our East Coast for many, many years, and in order to be 
a safe traveler on the water, lighthouses are very, very important. At least they used to be. Before GPS and cell phones, I guess. Absolutely. And radar. (laughs) And there's so many cool things about lighthouses and how they operated and how they worked and who took care of them. As a matter of fact, there's a tour that you can take all the way from the tip of Door County all the way down to Kenosha and visit 10 lighthouses. And that's not even close to how many we do have, but 10 lighthouses probably take you at least a day, if not two. So there's a lot of different tours that you can take in regards to lighthouses. And if you want to learn more, there's two books. One, Wisconsin Lighthouses, a photographic and historical guide by Ken Wardias. And another one, Lighthouses of Wisconsin, a guidebook and keepsake by Bruce Roberts and Ray Jones. I'm sure that they have very well documentation of the lighthouses because some of them are also more inland than always just on the Great Lakes. I know there are some listed here in Lake Winnebago, which is kind of amazing. I didn't know that before I looked that one up. So in your research, Bill, how the heck were they operated? I mean, back in the day, how did this happen? You You had your lighthouse keeper. So there was a family oftentimes or individuals who would be living in the lighthouse and they're oftentimes very remote situations. So a very solitary life, I would call that for sure. I've toured a couple of them over the years, but always have walked away with that it's a very solitary life. And that it took a lot of work because you're always up keeping the light functioning, especially during the most inclement weather, that winter, summer, year-round, 365, 24 hours a day, that light has to be lit and be available for the navigation. So they were actually physically distancing back in those days. Very much so. They probably had great health. But I guess if you had a problem, it'd become a problem. (laughs) So they're working from home. Yes. Now it's very fashionable. Yes, very fashionable. Well, that would be uh, really a tough thing. I cannot imagine working from home, but what a life that would have been. And I'm sure a lot of stories that they would have. And you have those, uh, I'm sure, a lot of stories in the books that you had mentioned. Right. Brian, would you ever want to live in a lighthouse? I would not want to live in a lighthouse. Mm. That is a lot of work. That light has to be going all night long. There's so much responsibility with it. You're protecting the lives of the sailors out there. Well, there must have been some families that didn't enjoy living in lighthouses because there's three haunted ones in Door County, so Ah, the spirits are still hanging around not real happy. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into a little bit more on the size of tire that is to fit on the car that you drive. So the question that comes up, a lot of people ask, well, there's so many different numbers when it comes to tires and so many different brands. They're just confused. You know, what size tire? What kind of numbers are we looking at on the tire? And how do I find out what size tire my vehicle takes? Well, the best place to figure that out is actually open your driver's door. There's going to be a placard in there that will have the tire size that was designed for your vehicle. And it's best to stick with that size. Now, once you have that number, it's going to be three different groupings of numbers. There's going to be a three-digit number, a slash a two-digit number, and then typically the letter R is going to be there, and then a two-digit number. So the first number is the section width or how wide the tire is. So, for example, a 225 is 225 millimeters wide. A lot of people think that the next number is the width of the tire. That's the aspect ratio. That's the percentage of width to height. So a 225-65 Sixty-five percent of the first number is how tall the sidewall is. So if we used a larger second number, a 75 series, 
That means the tire is a little bit taller. A 225.75 is taller than a 225.65. And the last number is the rim diameter. Anywhere from 12 to 22, anywhere in between there is a typical rim diameter. Most of them are 16, 17, 18 inch rim diameters. Now there's some other numbers on the side of a tire too that I'm not real familiar with. I could probably quote some of the things, but I know there's a load rating, a speed rating. Yep. The next grouping of numbers, as an example, would be a 109S. The 109 is the metric load index or how much that tire is designed to carry, how many pounds. The letter on the end of it is the speed rating of the tire. So all tires, anywhere from your lawnmower tire all the way up to your earth moving tires have a speed rating. And it's whatever speed that that vehicle is designed to operate at is determined by the size that you put on the car. Oh my gosh, there is so much to know. When I go shopping for tires, is it a benefit that I know all this information? As a consumer, to be informed is a good thing. So the more you know, the better the questions you can ask to determine what's the right tire for me. You don't have to. You can go into your local tire specialist and they can guide you through the process without having to know any information. But I always... Good to be informed. Good to be informed. So does any of that sizing, though, make a difference in the tire that's going to fit or that I should be using or purchasing based on my use? So if I'm on the road, off the road, commute, is there any size differential of those numbers that would make a difference in the type of use? The size that's designed for the car may give you limited choices. So you'll have to take the size and then determine what tires are available. And then you can drill it down to the specifics of your question. What's the best feature for me? There's a couple of cars out there that only have two different tires available. That's more your high-end sports cars, but it does limit your choice based on what the engineers designed. Because, I mean, to some degree, if you're telling, if we're saying that the door placard gives me the size, I only have that one size to choose from. So would I ever be in a situation where I'm going to change the size of the tire with the help of potentially a professional or somebody on the web telling me I can't do this, that like I'm going to change my size? When we change sizes of the tires, it's typically done on a pickup and we're trying to change the load carrying capacity or what the owner of the vehicle is trying to accomplish by utilizing this pickup. I would definitely get a professional involved at that point because you want to make sure that the tire that you're picking is able to handle the load carrying capacity and you're not going to put yourself in a dangerous situation. Because isn't there also just a physical aspect of the wheel well can only handle such a certain size of the tire based on the diameter of the wheel, I can assume. I think that's when they lift these trucks way up in the air and make room for the biggest monster tires you can possibly imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Can I do that with my four-door sedan? Yes. All right. That's where you start getting into custom rims and you want the look of the vehicle to be different change up the styling of it. And that's where you start getting into what's called plus sizing. So you change the rim diameter. In the end of the day, you need to end up with the same overall circumference on the tire. So that's really getting into some math when you start doing that. We're getting geeky out here. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the typical consumer here. I've got a lot of information flying around this room right now. I I really enjoy getting into plus sizing. So... (laughs) 
it's a lot of fun. Well, you live in the right area because we all see those big pickup trucks going down the road mm-hmm. in central Wisconsin, and some of those tires are absolutely huge, and they look so different and very unique. So if you're into plus sizing, you're in the right area for sure. Yeah, some of these tires are so big, they're bigger than the guys putting them on the truck. Right. <laughs> absolutely. Well, we've just uh, shared a lot of information in the first part of our series of buying your next set of tires. Again, a lot of numbers flying around here, a lot of information. It can be all simplified if you go to Sherrill Tire and Service, and they can help you through this whole process. So ride along with us next time on our podcast, All About the Car, in our series of buying your next set of tires. To listen to previous episodes, find additional resources, or send us a message, head to allaboutthecarpodcast.com. See you next time.